When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. My brand new book, Midwife Pip's Guide to a Positive Birth, is now available. So much more than a book, this is a guide that allows me to hold your hand through your birth preparation journey. With over a decade of experience and knowledge packed in to ensure you really are empowered in the way you deserve to achieve a positive birth, regardless of the twists and turns that crop up. Make sure that you get your hands on Midwife Pip's Guide to a Positive Birth Book now and are empowered to have the birth experience that you deserve. Hello, I'm Pip and welcome to the Midwife Pip podcast, the home of expert information and real chats on all things pregnancy, birth and beyond. Remember, as a podcast listener, you can get 15% off my online courses at midwifepip.com using the code podcast15. If you're a parent, then you will know that parenting is hard. It's the most chaotic rollercoaster of emotions, but so much magic, as well as a fairly hefty dose of challenge, learning and troubleshooting along the way. This week, I am joined by Dr. Emma Spamberg, known on Instagram as at mumologist. Emma is an award-winning clinical psychologist, speaker, and campaigner, specializing in attachment, trauma, and perinatal psychology. Emma is also the author to her wonderful book, Parenting for Humans, linked in the episode description. This is a warm and supportive read, packed with Emma's experience and wisdom. So welcome, Emma, and thank you so much for joining me today. What a lovely introduction. Thanks, Pip, and thank you for having me. I'm sorry, I'm talking about good parenting as a juggle. I've got the kids and dog in the background, so my apologies for any interruption. Welcome to recording from home during (laughs) half term. (laughs) The realities of, love it, I love it. And actually, Emma, really easy to introduce you because having read your book is flipping awesome absolutely love thank it you. thank you Brilliant. I'm so pleased that you enjoyed it I mean it's lovely having it out there in the world and hearing how people are mm. receiving it and what it means to them and kind of some of the conversations that I've been having have been really helpful and interesting yeah oh my god it's so needed and it just helps you make sense of yourself which probably sounds a bit odd um but I think when people read it they'll be like oh I do that because of that like that makes sense now I can work on that which I which I love super practical and compassionate and beautiful so so thank you first of all thank Um, you and then the first question I want to ask you Emma is quite a broad one but I think it's all become a little bit muddled in the the world that we currently live in and that we currently parent in so I want to ask you broadly what on earth is a parent? Because we hear all these terms now, you know, gentle parent, monastery parent. Say it. This is how confusing <laughs> it is, right? Attachment <laughs> parents. Honestly, I am lost by it all and really confused. So what are we even as parents? <laughs> we are just people with children. 
That's it. That's our definition of being a parent, right? We're just our people, caregivers who have children who may or may not be our own biological children. Mm But I think over the past, it's actually over the past 70 years, but the kind of verb to parent has become more and more about something that we do and it's not somebody that we are. And I think that's where all of those labels can get really confusing because we can have this sense that I need to choose my camp. You know, I need to kind of figure out what kind of parent I'm going to be and how I'm going to do this task of parenting. Mm. And then it can feel a little bit like a kind of tick box exercise. And then if there are certain aspects of that parenting philosophy or those parenting strategies that don't fit with us or don't fit with our lifestyle or don't fit with our circumstances, we can then feel like we're kind of failing in some way or we can feel a bit isolated or we can be judged. You know, actually some of those camps can be quite um, exclusive, you know, to people outside of those camps. So it can get really complicated really quickly. I think the reason that we do that is because parenting, like you said at the beginning, Pip, it's it's really, really hard. And especially when we're doing it for the first time, you know, it's what we like to do, right? We like to have somebody say, if you do these things, then you're doing okay. And in some ways, you know, it's really attractive to then go, okay, well, maybe if I become, for example, an attachment parent and I do these things that are defined under this umbrella term of attachment parenting, then I can feel like I'm doing a good job. Then I can feel like I'm being a good mum or dad. Um, And that will kind of help me contain what is essentially the chaos of becoming a parent and having children who are themselves quite chaotic and also raise so much in us about our own childhood, our own upbringing. So, you know, it helps us to kind of try and make something feel simple which actually is really, really complex. Really complex. And we're just so scared of getting it wrong, aren't we? We're so, we always need that validity of I'm doing it this way and society will tell me that's really fantastic. And then I know I'm doing it right. So whatever happens, I did it right because I did it this way. And like you say, it's yeah. just not that simple. It's not. And then it becomes about external validation, right? It becomes mm-hmm. about doing it because this is what looks like it's right rather than I'm doing it because this is what feels best for me or what feels best for my child. And, you know, we might use all of these beautiful strategies, but actually if they, they're not the strategies that work for us or our children, then we can get a bit tangled up. Oh, definitely. And I think that leads me into my next question, really, Emma, is parenting's really tough. We've both kind of alluded to that already. Why is it so, so tough? And do you think it's got more difficult because we've added in all of this sort of confusion and we've got the world of social media and we feel like we've got all the eyes and judgment on us? Um, I think parenting's always been tough. I think that it's hard work raising small humans and they have needs that cannot be met by themselves for a long period of time. So, you know, it is a demanding task. It is, you know, one of the most demanding tasks of adulthood. I think what makes it tougher is the lack of recognition of that. You know, there can be this uh, sort of story around parenting that it can, I call it a fairy tale in the book. It's like this kind of myth, really, that parenting is easy, it's natural, it's something that should come naturally to us that we should just be able to cope with no matter what. Um, And I think that that story has become more entrenched somehow. Mm -hmm. I think even in the sort of 20 years or so that I've been working with families, somehow that fantasy has become even stronger and that it should be effortless. And at the same time, 
there is much more around the kind of context of parenting that has raised pressure. So you mentioned social media. So there might be a kind of another fairy tale there that not only should it look effortless, but it should look aesthetically beautiful. You know, so there's part <laughs> of that. And I should look aesthetically pleasing too while I'm parenting. You know, that's kind of quite a new um, pressure that I think lots of parents are under nowadays. I should also report on my parenting if I'm on social media. That's something that becomes very public. Whereas historically, parenting is definitely something that has been done behind closed doors and within our communities. Yeah. And we are also much more isolated. You know, that is something that has really increased over the last sort of 50 to 70 years. We're much more isolated. We have much less support from family, from community around us, from services, which has really increased in the last 15 years. You know, as you know, as a midwife, you know, the kind of support that we have around maternity has just shifted so much, even in the last 10 years. So all of that has changed. And at the same time, the outcomes of parenting have also changed. So there's a huge increase in pressure on what we expect a good outcome to look like. You know, when I was being raised, you know, a good outcome was being academically successful. That was something that was very much part of 80s and 90s parenting. Modern parenting is about having well-rounded children who are able to express their emotions in really healthy ways and are academically successful. (laughs) And, you know, look a certain way. And, you know, there's so much more kind of around what family life is nowadays that can really raise pressure on us as individual parents and on us as a family and on our relationship. So I think all of that absolutely makes it harder because the pressure has increased exponentially. Yeah. And it's always like we're sat in this little pressure cooker, aren't we, with all this bubbling around us. And what I I really love you talking there about the the change, the shifts in society and the expectation on parents and on children, like for sure, like the, the expectation on children has a whole nother, you know, yeah. heap of heap of things that we could probably talk in a whole nother episode about. Um, but I always try and explain to parents and absolutely I felt this in my own fourth trimester is that it's like the societal expectations on us just do not align in any way with the physiological needs of a new mum and a new child. And Uh, we've got this like really difficult thing that we're trying to navigate and align up that are just never going to align up. And we have to find our own way of accepting and and navigating through that kind of muddy time, I think. Yeah, that's such a helpful way to frame it as well, right? Because when you know that there's a conflict there or multiple conflicts Mm -hmm. there, then you do feel like you know it is then your choice to forge your own pathway Mm. and actually I think that's something that can feel so important is that actually I can take this from here and I can take this from this other bit and I like this idea and I like this philosophy and I like you know this community but actually I'm going to take those bits that feel good for me and I'm going to forge my own path rather than actually I'm going to try and stick to this one way of doing things or this one way of being and actually if there's anything that conflicts with that then it becomes a sense of personal failure or personal responsibility and maternity is such a good example right because you know there's a huge conflict at the moment societally around our expectations within our couple relationship you know our our, the majority of people in couple relationships there is a wish to be um, equitable partners in their parenting and in their couple relationship. There's quite a lot of research done on that the, the way that that will then conflict with and contrast with our kind of parenting goals, which have become more around kind of natural parenting, 
intensive parenting, which is very much around usually the mum and the baby being supported and being that kind of quite intensive dyad for the first mm. two to a year. There's a huge conflict there in our kind of couple goals and our parenting goals. If we don't know that, then that causes conflict in the relationship. If we're aware of that, then we can talk about it and go, okay, this is what we're aspiring to be as parents. This is what we're aspiring to be within our couple relationship. How are we going to marry those two things up? Mm. So that actually it becomes conscious and spoken about rather than what usually happens is that it's unconscious and then just resentment brews. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure there's so many people resonating that are going to be nodding like, yeah, yeah, I felt that. I've been there. We're here. We're here. We're here. And that's really what your book's about, isn't it? It's it's getting to know yourself so that we can then sort of unpick that and become the parents that ultimately we, we want to be and that we're aspiring to be. Yeah. And really the parents that we already are. I think that's the thing. You know, there's it's nice. something about us kind of looking to become these parents, like we, we have a goal that we're trying to achieve or there is a particular parent kind of ideal that we're aspiring to. We already are, you know, whole human beings. We already are parenting. And in some ways, it's just about understanding where that is coming from for us. Um you know, the things that are influencing us and maybe we don't really want to change anything at all maybe it's just about understanding better where some of those things are coming from yeah no that's that's a really nice way of, way of putting it like that so we've talked a little bit about fairy tales and you write a lot in the book about about those kind of fairy tales like the the beautiful pictures that we see on instagram where the mum looks like she's just walked off the catwalk and the baby's peacefully asleep and I've never had this experience in my 17 months of parenting, but hey, some people do and that's really great and that's lovely and that's obviously important to them and they've managed to get a picture at that moment, which is even more impressive. Um, but do you think that these fairy tales are myths versus quite often for the, for the majority of us, let's be honest, that's not the reality. Do you think that kind of disparity has impacted parents in the way that they are, their mental health, et cetera? I think it can do. I mean, what the research shows is that there are some people who would be more prone to feeling kind of anxious or depressed mm. for a huge variety of different reasons. Um, and part one of those reasons can be what we call socially oriented perfectionism. Mm-hmm. So it's a, a kind of, we can see it as sort of multi-layered, I suppose, that there are some people who will feel more sensitive to that sense of judge, social judgment from others. Mm -hmm. and will feel more pressure to aspire to be like those idealized images and there are lots of different reasons why that might be the case for those people those kind of images and those kind of aesthetics and ideals will raise their anxiety or raise their feelings of inadequacy and that can have a mental health impact so it's never simple it's never kind of cause and effect this thing causes this for everybody but um we do know that for you know, fairly big minority of people, actually those sort of images can feel quite harmful. Mm. What's really interesting about that for me actually as a psychologist on social media, it's not just about those beautiful images of new parents kind of looking stunning with lovely sleeping babies. It's also about hearing evidence or um, information from experts like me. Mm. So that can also cause anxiety for people who have that sense of socially prescribed perfectionism or that fear of judgment mm. not just about you know kind of looking at let's say mum influences it's also hearing from people like me so that's something that I think about a lot in the work that I do in how easy it is to kind of increase pressure on people without realizing mm, that's a really interesting take actually Emma so 
in, in that way, are you thinking if, if for example, there's a, a parenting account, and I'm not thinking of any, any in particular that say, when your toddler has a tantrum, we should do this and not do that. And if you're a parent that's been doing that thing they've told you not to do, you then have those feelings. Is, is that what you're sort of alluding to there? Absolutely. You can have such such huge feelings of failure and shame. And I think that that kind of information is can be so helpful if you can take it and use it in your particular situation and apply it to your particular child and how you operate. And that's where things can like that kind of um, sometimes quite simplified parenting information on kind of social media or in blogs, you know, that can sometimes be, it can sometimes raise pressure for people when it, because it's really hard to then take that piece of information and apply it in that very particular way. Mm. When it doesn't work, we can be left feeling that we've got absolutely nothing in our toolkit. And part of that is because, you know, we're taking external information mm-hmm. and which from somebody who doesn't really know us and doesn't really know our individual circumstances. Um, and, you know, when we then kind of, yeah, rather than sort of looking at our child and looking at how we want to be as parents um, and then thinking about actually how do I want to apply, apply that for me? How much do I believe in that? Yeah. How much do I feel like this is going to work? Like one of the examples that I give in the book is, you know, somebody perhaps reading out a script that they've read on Instagram that should be helpful with a toddler who's having a tantrum, but actually because you're reading beautiful words, but actually feeling quite anxious about whether this is actually going to work with this toddler who is actually at that point just exploding with a huge expression of emotion. (laughs) When those words don't work, you can be left feeling really stuck. Like, okay, I've tried that. What do I do next? There's, there's a step that's, I think, some often missing from those kind of conversations, which is, why do I feel like I need that script in the first place? Like, what is it about me that means that I don't feel like I have, I don't feel like I'm well equipped to be able to deal with these emotions? Maybe that's because actually this was not something that was ever taught to me. Let's think about how I was responded to if I had a tantrum as a toddler. Once we understand that, then we can come from a place where we feel really grounded in our own position where we feel able to accept these big emotions from our toddler. And then that script actually becomes really valuable, you know, once we know kind of the position that we're coming from. So interesting, isn't it? And and I think that that kind of leads me on to what I wanted to discuss with you next, Emma, in that our childhood and our innate being prior to becoming parents, what sort of impact can that have on our and on our parenting and and does it have a direct kind of correlation to the way we parent and the way we were parented and our pre-lived experience yes it's a very short answer to what is a really complex question um i mean our childhood is the basis of who we are as adults and you know we are human beings who exist in the context of our relationships like we become who we are through our relationships with other people. And there's loads of research out there nowadays around kind of infant development and our sense of self, you know, how we develop a sense of health, a sense of self that happens in our experiences with other people. You know, we do, we don't exist in a vacuum. We understand who we are through repeated experiences of having been responded to in particular ways. Um, it can feel really complicated. You know, there's a lot written now about attachment theory, about kind of relationship dynamics. Childhood trauma is something that's become talked about much more openly. 
And all of those things influence how we are kind of patterns of relating to other people and our expectations of other people. Those are things that kind of just happen in the background. I mean, often they'll come up to our consciousness when we're having a tricky time in our relationships. If we're feeling rejected, for example, by somebody, then we might think about, you know, where are other times in our life where we felt rejected? But often they, we kind of park that right until, you know, becomes something that becomes a really pressing issue. When we have a child, the, all of that stuff literally just comes and like slaps us in the face. It becomes so present in our consciousness. And, you know, we both relate to our baby as we were related to, or we might overcompensate and try and relate to our baby in a way that is very different to the way that we were responded to. What a lot of people also, I think, aren't aware of is that we also experience our baby through the lens of the way that we've experienced other people too. Mm. And one of the kind of ways that we can, um, one of the kind of clearest examples of that, I think, is that we can almost think about how we interpret our baby's cries, even when they're absolutely tiny. Mm. The things that we hear in those cries are very much related to the other experiences that we've had in our early life too, and our experiences that we've had in our other relationships. So one person might hear fury in their yeah. baby's cry, you know, kind of how dare you leave me like this. Another person might hear that that baby's cry is abandonment. You know, how could you leave me? Um, you know, and, and that very much relates to our own experiences, both as babies and also kind of what we have come to expect from other people. Mm, that's really, really interesting, Emma, especially what you talk about, about crying, because I know that even personally in our me and my husband with our little boy, we've definitely had that. Well, this is what he's telling us through this cry. No, this is what he's telling us. And I know there'll be parents listening that have the exact same conversations, maybe yeah. even on a daily basis. Yeah. Um, and I love the idea that actually the, the power is almost within us and understanding ourselves to be able to, to move that forward. And, and communication, right? That seems to be a real theme, communicating yeah. what, what we're thinking, why we might be thinking it, and then looking looking to talk to each other and and try and bring that together rather than end up in this conflict of, of well, I think this and I think that. Which yeah, is so and what it, it means that the solution then becomes very different, right? Well, if my baby's crying because they're angry, but if my baby's crying because they're feeling abandoned, then there might be two very different responses to those things. But actually, uh, you know, at the essence, it's about how are we going to tolerate and accept this expression of whatever it is, the, this expression of crying, in order that we can then, you know, actually meet our baby where they are and really try and tune into what this baby is telling us and not mm. the lens that we're kind of interpreting that through my goodness no wonder being a parent emma is so blooming hard it's, complicated. <laughs> it's so complicated yeah. and it also you know there is it raises such infantile feelings in us mm. so i'm talking you know we're talking about this in quite a cognitive intellectual way you know it's like it's very easy for me and you to sit here without a crying baby and be able to be very curious about Oh, you know, when if a baby cries, we might feel feel these different things about that. Actually, the the feeling that comes up in our body when those things are triggered is overwhelmingly enormous. And yeah. those are our raw emotions, our infantile emotions that are from our very earliest days that come up and feel so present mm. because we don't know that it can feel really irrational. You know, there's that sort of, but why am I responding in this way? Or why did that make me cry? Or why did that make me shout at my partner? Yeah. But actually, when you understand that you're not just dealing with 
you know, this transition to becoming a parent and everything that that brings, you're also dealing with this vulnerability of touching your own kind of very, very tiny baby feelings. Mm -hmm. That's enormous. And no wonder it's such a time of emotional turmoil and, you know, kind of just feeling like we're on this emotional roller coaster. Yeah, you're kind of managing two babies in essence, aren't you? You know, they, that old you and this new human that you are desperate to do Absolutely. everything as perfect for as possible. Yes, and also possibly a third baby, right? If you're if you have a partner who's also dealing with all of yeah. their kind of little baby feelings, and yeah. you might have other children, so there are lots of you know little tiny, very primitive feelings around in those early days of parenting. Gosh, so interesting, Emma. So interesting. Um, now kind of leading into that I suppose is our emotions as parents and trying to regulate those now I'm sure I'm not alone in finding that on pretty much a daily basis to be honest I kind of sway simultaneously from this like oh look beautiful peaceful sleeping baby you know if I took a picture it would be well placed on Instagram social media beautifulness to then a blaring toy drum or guitar or you know the helicopter that's zooming round and then the laundry pile is just getting bigger and bigger and bigger and all you want to do sometimes is just scream for help and feel immensely overwhelmed which I know we hear that term don't we overwhelm so much when it comes to parenting what can we do instead of having that blaring ah ask for help how can we try and regulate our emotions in this crazy swing that we're always doing well, I think um, it might not be so much about how do we not have that feeling, because I think that that feeling of overwhelm is a very normal part of parenting. You know, we're dealing with the very big emotions of other people and we're also dealing with our own feelings too. And we're also then dealing with all of the kind of practicalities around, you know, family life in quite an isolated set of circumstances. So we are going to be overwhelmed at times. Um, I think so partly it's just normalizing that just knowing that that is going to be part of your daily life and if that's the case then rather than judge myself for it how am I going to manage it you know so that actually I feel like it's not getting to the point where I feel completely overcome with my feelings that I actually can anticipate that that's going to happen and prepare for it partly I think there's kind of some really systemic stuff there around how much we do do on our own so are there people that you can ask for help is there a community around you that you can lean on in any way and it might not be often we don't get help from the places that we're expecting it we yeah. can also and that can help. be hard right that can be really hard when your expectation is they'll be oh yeah I'll help and actually it's no I can't you're like oh. no and that's a really common experience too right to have so one thing that we talk about I run a um, parenting group called the village on Facebook and one of the things that we talk about quite a lot is the so it's the grief when grandparents aren't as present or as available as you'd hope they would be. But a part of that journey might be having other people who are kind of chosen family around you who mm. can come and help out in a different way. It might also be questioning your expectations. You know, is there, do I have certain ideals or expectations? <clears throat> Sorry, that are, you know, kind of putting pressure on me that maybe I can let go of. So possibly actually the laundry basket is just always going to be a little bit full for the next couple of years. If that's the case, how can I manage that in a way that feels all right with me? You know, who is the one who's doing the laundry? You know, is there kind of something there about a fairer division of household labour that I need to have that conversation with my partner? So there's lots of stuff kind of even just around those daily life circumstances that we often don't think about because we're just like 
oh, this is awful in this moment and I need it to shift right now. So thinking about those kind of systems around you, first of all, and what can be done preventatively. Then I think just in those moments, kind of finding ways to ground yourself is what we're talking about is your very natural automatic stress response. You know, that's what happens to us as parents through the day. Our adrenaline is just gradually going up. You know, we have somebody shouting at us, so our adrenaline rises, you know, we can start to get into that fight, flight, freeze response. Then maybe, you know, a toddler's climbing on us and they have those really little grippy hands that can actually feel kind of really quite overstimulating. Lots of noise, more stimulation, maybe we haven't slept well. So in all of those things, you know, it becomes much more likely that we're going to have what's called an amygdala hijack, which is where the frontal lobes of the brain, which are the parts of the brain that keep us feeling like wise grown-ups, just disappear. And our emergency system in the brain, our amygdala kind of kicks in and sends us into a state of overdrive. And that's mm-hmm. why we start to feel that really kind of pure feeling of overwhelm where we're really likely to either shout or burst into tears or just shut down. So what I often suggest to people is is just taking pauses at regular times during the day just to check in with yourself. You know, where are my adrenaline levels? Do I feel like I'm kind of boiling a little bit? And is there anything that I can do just to turn the heat down? Mm. In parenting, you know, we don't often have those opportunities where we're like, well, actually, I'm going to get up early in the morning and meditate for half an hour or I'm going to go and have a soak in the bath for 10 minutes often those things can feel really unavailable to us Mm. and that can actually cause us more stress you know feeling like that is out of reach Mm. we can do lots of things in very small moments where maybe we just put our hands on our heart and we just take a few really long slow breaths Mm. really deep into our belly and then big bellowing sighs out through an open mouth that just tells our body it's okay we're safe there's no emergency here we might also have a little mantra that we say to ourselves like this isn't an emergency I'm okay I'm safe anything that we feel is right for us to just remind our bodies that we're in a safe place and we're able to cope with what is coming coming in with us I think also having things that ground us just in the here and now so one thing that we might do is just look around the room and just say in our mind, this is what I can see. It just helps us kind of flip our brains back into that kind of more wise adult part of our brains rather than that kind of really frightened, I need to do something about this now part of our brain. So lots of different things. And there's lots of those kind of tips in the book, right? Kind of things that we can do to ground ourselves in the moment. That's so useful, Emma. I think, you know, hearing you talk about all these things that we typically juggle and don't really think anything of until it kind of all grinds to a halt in our minds. We would never expect that of like our friend, would we? Or our family member. We would never say, can you just do all today and be really fine about it? Or we would never have that expectation, but yet we feel that we should be able to do that ourselves. It's crazy. Uh, It it adds so much pressure. And not only would we never ask our friends to to do all of that, but we would certainly never stand over them going, and why haven't you done this? Yes. (laughs) Why are you you doing it all with a smile? Yeah. it's mad isn't it and I think that's you know it's even just bringing that to our consciousness like what are we actually asking of ourselves every day is that realistic yeah probably not if it's not then what can we do to just be a bit more kind towards ourselves and you know actually really acknowledge and appreciate what it is that we try and do day in day out 
Definitely. We've um, got a, a technique in our house, Emma, that, that people listening might have heard me talk about before, but we do take five and we're trying to teach our toddlers to do this as well. So we have our hand and we draw around our thumbs and our fingers. And as we go up our thumb or finger, we breathe in. And as we come down, we go out. So we just do five breaths. And if it gets a little bit tense, everyone pauses and takes five. Um, and that's been working really nicely for us. And it feels really achievable because it's it takes like five seconds, essentially, yeah. which is quite nice. It is. And I'm going to add to that, that there will be a point where your toddler probably turns around and just goes, no. Yeah, probably. probably. No, At the I'm moment he thinks that. it's great because he's found his fingers. But uh... <laughs> yeah. Or if you have if you have children who are being raised by a psychologist, they <laughs> get to the age where they go, I'm not doing that psychology stuff. <laughs> <laughs> you and, and I think it's, the clinic, really, <laughs> it's really helpful to then kind of think about all of these tools as being things that might work in this moment in space but children change we change you know and actually part of this whole process of parenting is about knowing that none of this stuff is forever you know that actually there will be points where we kind of adapt this or we need to be flexible or we expect a bit of pushback because actually our child has shifted And just knowing that can be so helpful that all of this stuff, you know, we kind of take the bits that work in the moment, but we're also really ready to kind of move on and discard them when circumstances have changed or our children have developed or we find a different technique that we want to try. I'll wait for the no. Thanks, Emma. Just Damn. A, just a oh, I had that one nailed. <laughs> I know. But I think this is exactly it. This is one of the key points that I really want to get across yeah. is we have this idea there is this attitude that is around in parenting that we all hold which is like once I've cracked this mm. then it's done <laughs> and it really it really kind of takes away from I think the fact that parenting is at its very core a relationship between you know a minimum of two people possibly many more people and that that will flex and flow and shift and adapt and that actually that's the beauty of it you know that's the stuff that makes parenting a joy and a pleasure as well as being really tough because at its very essence it is about that relationship yeah when we kind of hold on to this idea that there is something that we can do something that we can get right a thing that we've achieved and then it's done forever it sort of takes away from our ability to then be flexible and shift and change as our child grows and develops and as we change too and want different things from our life. Yeah, we can't stay the same, can we? We're just life wouldn't work. It would not work. No, nor should we want to, you know, like actually we are that's what we do, humans. Like we develop constantly. We're shifting all the time. The, be- the beauty of us, Emma, the beauty. Now, some of the like parenting characters that you mentioned in your book. So you've got the lover, the critic, the fretter the stoic, the warrior, the ogre, the wounded soul, and the floater. I did have to write this down in my confession. I could not remember them all. Yeah, um, we are. The character. <laughs> <laughs> now, could you just briefly summarise for us how these characters and individuals might impact our ability to parent, perhaps in the way we wish, and then perhaps the impact that, that may then go on to have on our children? So essentially what um, I I sort of talk about it in terms of characters in the book, and it's not necessarily just parenting characters, it's the characters that we all take on as we grow, sort of in our later childhood, adolescence and into adulthood. Lots of different psychological models and theories talk about this in different ways. So we might talk about it as defence mechanisms, for example, in psychodynamic theory, um, in different theories it's spoken about in kind of with different terminology, but 
essentially we can see these as characters that we put on in order to help us cope with the world around us, with the relationships that we have, and essentially to protect us from our own feelings of vulnerability. Yeah. So if, for example, we make a decision that, um, or not even a conscious decision, if because of our upbringing, our go-to stress response is a fight response, then we might have a character that looks a little bit like the ogre, Mm -hmm. which essentially is, you know, really kind of, I'm going to stomp down on these, let's say, to use the example of the toddler tantrum that we had Mm -hmm. before, actually, because that raises feelings of vulnerability for me, I'm going to stomp down on that by putting my foot down. No, absolutely not. That is not happening in my house. Mm. And so that becomes a really comfortable defense for us. But what it stops us from doing is really connecting with the person in front of us who in this Mm. is our child. So there are layers of protection. Essentially, we might use different characters at different times. We often will have sort of go-to characters that feel more comfortable for us, which are based on our kind of automatic stress responses. But where they can get in the way is that they stop us from really being able to meet our child where they are, because actually our first step is protecting ourselves and protecting the feelings that our child is raising in us. Does that make sense? It does. And it it goes back, I suppose, to that understanding of ourselves and the way we react in a way linked to our previous experiences, which I know is what you you are kind of all about unpicking in, in the book. Um, I just didn't realise, Emma, until I until I heard you talk, when I heard you talk a couple of weeks ago, is when I was like, wow, oh my gosh, I need to look into this more. Um, the the real impact, I suppose, I suppose it makes sense. And I probably thought, oh, well, you know, maybe we react this way because of our previous experience. But I didn't realise quite how powerful and innate it was moving forward. So it's fascinating. Yeah. And, you know, it is a theory, you know, then there are lots of other theories and there are people who would disagree with that as a theory. And that it's also a theory that has been critiqued, you know, that uh, but in some ways I, I see us all as humans as kind of existing as lots and lots of different layers. And it's a huge cliche, right, that in psychology we talk about our childhoods and blame everything on our parents. But actually, of course, <laughs> our childhood has a profound impact on us, both from a relational basis but we also have the evidence now to show that that it has a you know an impact on our brain development Mm -hmm. that has an impact on our sense of self that has an impact on how we show up in the world that impacts on our other relationships so there is this kind of continual feedback loop it's not just about our parents or our caregivers it's also about you know our communities our schooling if we have a faith you know what kind of religious um communities might have been around us, what sort of value systems we grow up in, particularly now, you know, thinking about the experiences of children who've been growing up over the past few years, what has it been like for them growing up in a global pandemic and all of the differences that that made to the services that were around them and the education system, childcare system. So, you know, it's not just about kind of what happens within our homes, it's also about all of those different things that can have an impact, not just on our families, but also on us as individuals as well. So it's, I mean, it's complex when we say it like that. I know that when we talk about that, a lot of people can then have this, it adds another pressure, right? How am I, how am I responsible as a parent? For this child. My child. <laughs> all of these things. But actually a part of the kind of nub of the book, I think is, is, allowing ourselves to know that we can never be wholly responsible for the outcomes that our 
children who are also complex human beings who are having their lives and they are also part of that process and mm. they are also individuals who have their own feelings and beliefs about things and bring lots to our relationship too so it's really about kind of acknowledging all of these things that can have an impact but also respecting that our child has a huge part in that as well yeah Oh, it's a beautiful chaotic dance, isn't it? Parent yeah. child. Yeah, what a lovely way of putting it. Beautiful chaotic dance. <laughs> oh, and we, we're here for it. Now, Emma, everyone that comes on the podcast, I'd love to finish with three top tips. And I am really interested to know what yours are going to be because I feel like you could give us 333 top tips. <laughs> um, but what would your three be for parents that are navigating this beautiful, beautiful time that is crazy that is parenthood? So I'm going to say number one to just release the pressure that actually, you know, lots of what the things that we've talked about today are about just how complex all of this is. So we can safely say that we can let go of the idea that we're going to get it right. Yeah. And actually just think about how we want to muddle through in the best way that, you know, the way that suits us, the best way that we can. So really letting go of that kind of idea of perfectionism and, and the need to get it right. And um, number two would be to understand ourselves, you know, that actually rather than try and what we tend to do is try and kind of collect as many tips and strategies and quick fix solutions as we can. Yeah. And that can actually raise our stress levels because we're thinking about all of these things that we have to remember and feeling like actually there's just so much that we can get wrong. Mm-hmm. Actually, if we can understand ourselves and start with ourselves and really know where we're coming from all of that stuff can make so much more sense. Mm. And then number three, I'm going to say is just slow down, like massively slow down. Understand that this is a lifelong relationship, this beautiful chaotic dance (laughs) we are part of, and that we have all of that time to be able to figure it out. We don't need to figure it all out right now. Oh, I love that. Just pausing and taking time. That's definitely going to be a, a takeaway for from me, Emma. Thank you so much. Your wisdom is amazing. And I love how calmly and compassionately you put it all as well. So big thank you. And remember, if yeah. you have listened to Emma today and thought, oh my gosh, I need more of that, like I did a few weeks ago, um, Emma's awesome book is linked in the episode description. So go and have a little read. Thank you so much, Pippin. Sorry about the Barking dog and hysterical children in the background. Barking dogs and hysterical children are always welcome. (laughs) Before you head off, I just need to tell you something. 68% of you who listen to my podcast have not hit the subscribe button. So can you do me a favor? If you have ever enjoyed listening and hit subscribe now, it makes a huge difference and helps me to keep bringing you episodes. The bigger the podcast, the bigger the guests and the more women we can reach and help. Thank you for subscribing and I look forward to chatting again soon. Hi, my name is Kay Adams and to be honest, I'm not so good with the aging process. So I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.